the strength training is very, very, very different to maybe some of the conventional circuit training or hit training you've done. And then after that, we can open up floor and have a discussion. So um, first of all, just to introduce your you guys to me, can you see yourselves on that screen? Should I move you over to the second monitor if I'm sharing that screen? Perfect. So just kind of my background very, very briefly, I won't talk too much about myself. So I run a, a consultancy company, Synapse Performance, Synapse Performance. And in that I, I do consultancy with teams and individuals, would run some educational events and seminars and then, and then work with athletes directly in, in a range of different sports. Um, from my own competitive background, um, I'm a power lifter, a little bit of trail running now and again when the urge takes me, but um, competitive power lifter would be my main, main sport. In terms of my background, academically, I come from a sports science background, currently finishing off my PhD in DCU, where I look at sex-related differences in adaptations to resistance training. So essentially look and ask, do females and males respond differently to training? And if so, why? are some of the factors and what maybe are some of the ways we need to adjust training and looking at the role of the mentor cycle and contraceptives then as well on adaptation to exercise. Um, I'm the co-director of the Irish Strength and Conditioning Network, which is essentially an Irish trade union for sports scientists and, and SNC coaches. And then I lead a course, I'm the course leader of a master's in sports performance analysis at Portobello Institute, where I lecture. And then I'm uh, director of education at Rugby Academy Ireland, where I um coordinate the educational courses so that is kind of my background and why I think I am qualified to talk about some of these things potentially so the first thing before we get into why we strength train or in terms of the exercise science the question should be first well do we need to do it why should we do it why should we bother with strength training I think when people think of strength training or weight training we tend to think more along this left-hand side of the spectrum of elite performance and why muscle is important for those individuals, but muscle strength and muscle function is really important across the whole um, lifespan. So for quality of life, and then as we get older, just to age healthily, it's important that we've highly functioning muscle. For example, if you don't have the strength to sit down and stand up of a chair by yourself, well, then you don't have the strength to go to the toilet by yourself, or you don't have independence. So as we get to older life, it's important to have good quality muscle so when we talk about strength training though there's probably three distinct benefits we can talk about um so for anyone that's interested in moving well performing well even from a sports perspective strength training improves performance we know it improves health and it reduces our injury risk so from sports performance essentially i won't go too much into it but anything we do movement is just force essentially we know if we walk we have to apply a force into the ground to propel us forward it's basic kind of newtonian physics but so having higher levels of strength may, means you basically have a higher capacity to exert force so you can um, jump higher run faster etc so as a if you're performing any type of sport and activity being strong is good and, and we see that right across the sports and there is a point where strong is strong enough but most people can benefit in getting stronger. And even if you're into sports like just running or cycling, we tend to see that improving strength and weight training improves what we call running or cycling economy, meaning that for any speed you run that, you're burning less energy, that you become more efficient um, in your endurance sports and reduce your injury risk. So 
we know that people say if you're into running, cycling, walking, people who are stronger get injured less. Um, it's just a simple fact. And people who engage in weight training tend to have a reduced injury risk. Now, this is kind of blunt, but being weaker will kill you earlier um, without being too crass about it. When we look at the epidemiology, when we look at populations, people who are stronger tend to live longer. Um, and this is even more prevalent in people over 65. And one of the reasons for that is being strong reduces your falls risk massively. So if you are weaker when you're older, you're more at risk of having a fall. And usually when people have a fall, then they break a hip and it leads to a downward spiral and ultimately reduces their quality of life and, and life expectancy. So being strong is really important for your health. Now, I will put my biases out front. I'm a power lifter. I like lifting big weights. So for people that maybe like more cardio and hit, they could say, well, he's a bit biased there, which I am. But when what's interesting, when we look at the science of people who reach their physical activity goals in terms of what the government guidelines are, those who reach the aerobic guidelines of 150 minutes per week seem to have a 16% reduction in what we call all-cause mortality, so just dying from any particular reason. People who only reach the strength levels of guidelines they have a larger reduction. So if it's a choice between only doing cardio and only doing strength, the science would nearly say that strength leads to better um, health outcomes if you just focus on the strength. Now, as you'd expect, if you do both, you see the largest reduction. So it's not an either or, both are important, but strength is equally or arguably more important than just cardiovascular exercise. So if it was a toss up between one and the other, I'd say do your strength training and try to keep your step count high during the day to keep your cardiovascular system healthy from the physical activity standpoint. Now, as I said, cardio is important though as well. It's important to get a sweat up and get the heart working because we see the same thing that those who have a higher VO2 max or cardiovascular fitness tend to have a reduced risk of dying from any cause. So kind of, we all kind of ex uh, accept kind of what strength training does from the sports perspective. But again, I just want to hammer home it's for not just for physique, not just for aesthetics, but for your health, resistance training and having strong muscles is really important. And this idea of healthy aging, we don't want to wait until it's too late. Um, if we can build up that strength earlier in life, well, then when we start to decline as we get older, we're already at a higher peak. So when you're at a higher peak, the decline isn't as severe. And if we strength train throughout the lifespan, we can reduce this decline or even reverse it. So healthy aging is something that we should do throughout our life. For females in particularly, though, we know that females are at a higher risk of injury in terms of joint injury. So with males, we tend to see a lot of the injuries be kind of mus muscular based where it's strains and pulls. With females, we tend to see more um, joint issues in terms of ligament and tendon injuries. And there's a couple of potential reasons for that. One is potentially down to female hormones that we know the fluctuating levels of estrogen and progesterone can affect what we call joint laxity. It can make basically how elastic your tendons and ligaments are change. And at certain times of the month, you may be at more risk of uh, injury. But one of the big factors that it tends to be is, and now I need to phrase this correctly. So I don't say this flippantly, but women on average are weaker than men in terms of we live in a society that when we look at sporting populations, males tend to be put into the weight room or resistant training at 12, 13, 14 years of age. 
where females don't tend to get exposed to that training until 17, 18 or above. And even I, I know of certain international rugby players who haven't, who only um, started lifting weights or got introduced to it when they got into the international squad. So if we had a society where we got girls training at 12, 13 years of age in the gym or doing strength training along with their sports, I think we'd start to see those balance out. So that's one of the factors is we need to just encourage more strength training in female athletes. Also, from a female perspective, we tend to see um, a big issue in the postmenopause phase of osteoporosis risk, so brittle bones. And this, again, can be down to estrogen. So estrogen and vitamin D work quite closely together in calcium utilization. So when we are in the postmenopausal phase, we tend to see that calcium utilization um, is, is hindered. So we have a lot of bone loss happens. Now, we can prevent this and we can increase our what we call our bone density by loading it up. What bones really respond to is load and compressive load in particular. So walking, running, swimming, cycling, they all, yes, put a bit of strain through the bones, but bones love resistance training and they love heavy weight being placed upon them and stress. And that is what stimulates new muscle growth. If you look at some of the research now that we do with the European Space Agency, it's all about how to preserve muscle mass and bones in space, because that's speaking with astronauts, where there's no gravity, there's no compressive load, the bones tend to wear away. So that's why most astronauts are training two, three hours a day while in the space station, while in orbit to try minimize this bone loss. So that's kind of why we should do resistance training. And I, I believe everyone should be stronger and do more strength training. But now to understand maybe some of the science behind it very quickly, um, the evolution of modern strength training. So if you look up S&C, strength and conditioning, you can go back to kind of the Greek times and Roman times and you have the gladiators, but I won't, I'll move it on a little bit. So a lot of what we know about strength training or the ideas we have around exercise science stems from a group of researchers that span from the 1800s, um, Walter Cannon and, and Bernard Cloud to name some, but essentially they all, their research built upon this man, Hans Selye. So he's a Hungarian physiologist. And essentially, again, it's probably when research ethics were a bit more liberal, I'd say he just did really bad things to mice is essentially all his career was. He used to put them in heat, cold, poison them. He used to just do a lot of bad stuff to mice and see how they reacted. But he put forward this idea of the general adaptation syndrome. So he said, an organism or a body is at rest at homeostasis. We put a stress on it and the body reacts to that stress to try and cope with it. Now his stuff was to do with just general stress response. He didn't really focus on exercise, but interestingly, exercise scientists then took this and you can see the difference between these two graphs they are very, very similar. So this is what we call the SRA graphs or the stimulus recovery adaptation curve. And what I want to kind of say now is all that exercise training is, any sort of exercise training, it's just stress application. We're putting a stress on our body, but we're trying to be strategic in how we apply that stress to an individual in order to adapt the way we want. If we put too much stress at any one point, we'll break and get injured. So all we do with training is we can see, uh, we can see here that where our body's at rest, we do a training stimulus. So you guys that have just done a workout, you've put a training stimulus in. Now, 
if I ask you, are you stronger before or after the training session? Well, you're stronger before because afterwards you're down here. You're fatigued. You're tired. So if I asked you to perform, well, you'd actually perform worse because your muscles are there's damage going on. You fatigue. But then when you go to sleep, eat protein, keep a kind of your life stresses down, your body's able to deal with that stress and you adapt and you super compensate. So you come up and you are stronger now than you were before. And at this stage, then we train again. If we don't, well, then we start to revert back to where we were and we get weaker. So that's all we're ever doing with any exercise program. We're trying to put a, a stress on the body, causes fatigue, and we recover and the body adapts. Uh, perfect. I'll just turn off that laser pointer. And what we do then over time is we train again and again at this peak. And if we time it right and the stress is applied properly, well, then over weeks and months, we get better and better. And we that's how we essentially get fitter and stronger. So that's all we're ever trying to do is apply a stress that causes an adaptation. So again, this is how I visualize writing training programs. So a lot of people get obsessed with the methods down at the bottom of the graph, the they like a certain type of training, CrossFit or supersets or circuit training or HIIT or whatever. They get obsessed with the methods, but that's the wrong way to look at it. We should look at it the other way. We should focus on what is the adaptation we're trying to achieve? What are the principles that need to be in place? And then choose a method. So to very quickly go through this, adaptation, first of all. So as I said, all we're ever trying to do is put a stress on our body that forces our body to adapt and change in a certain way. So we need to be very clear on what our adaptation is when we're designing a training program. So we ask ourselves, well, what is our goal? What am I trying to achieve? And say for us for the next few weeks, it's increased strength. We want to increase the strength of our muscles and maybe grow a little muscle along with it. So that could be, as I said, muscle gain. Your adaptation could be fat loss. It could be increased sprint speed. It could be anything. But you have to be very clear on what you're trying to achieve with your goal. What is my goal and what is the adaptation I'm trying to induce? And then to get a bit more complex, you can consider, well, what's the time course of my adaptation? And that's important because you can say, well, my adaptation, I want to lose 10 kilograms of body fat and I want to do it in two weeks. Well, they don't line up. The physiology doesn't line up. You can't do it. Same with growing muscle. When we, you get stronger over the next few weeks, what you'll notice is you don't gain muscle straight away you get stronger though. And that's the nervous system and neurological pathways getting better and you getting more efficient with the movement. But muscle gain to be noticed takes about four to six weeks before you start to notice actual increase in the muscle size. So there's a bit of a lag between the gain and strength and the gain in muscle size. Once you're clear on the adaptation, then you focus on the principles. And principles are basically the rules that have to be followed or the elements that have to be there to achieve the desired goal. So principles are what we must follow and we must adhere to them. For example, if you were to lose body mass, if you were to reduce your body weight, well, then the principle of energy balance must be applied. You must be in a calorie deficit over a sustained amount of time. If you're not, well, then it doesn't occur. When it comes to strength, some of the principles that we're going to focus on are progressive overload and specificity. And I'll discuss those in a few minutes. But the key questions were asked. So in this stage one, we're clear on what our adaptation is, what we desire. Now we must ask ourselves, okay, what drives that desired adaptation? What elements 
must I ensure are in place in order to achieve that? So as I said, if that was fat loss is desired adaptation, well then energy balance, a calorie deficit is the principle that must be applied. And then your methods, how do I actually go about doing that? What is the training I do to drive that adaptation or what is the diet I follow to achieve that? And there is no one best method when it comes to training and nutrition. Two individuals can get the same adaptation. Again, I always go back to fat loss, but it's just because it's the easiest for us all probably to conceptualize. Two individuals can desire the same adaptation, which is fat loss, and they need to apply the same principle, which is calorie deficit. But for one person, they might like certain types of food. They might like pizza and beer and that kind of thing. So a low carb approach probably doesn't suit that individual where another person might enjoy more fatty based foods and is not too fussed with the carb side of things. So maybe for that individual, a higher fat and a lower carb diet would be just as efficient. But once the calorie deficit is matched between the two different methods or the approaches, well, then the same principle is being applied and the same adaptation will be achieved. So again, we don't get bogged down in methods. Rather, we just worry about are we applying the principles correctly? for the goal that we desire. So for the specific situation, what methods can you use to drive these adaptations? And oftentimes we'll ask ourselves then, is there a better way of achieving this goal? Is are my methods actually the most sustainable and the most pragmatic and adherable for me? Because a lot of time and the mistakes a lot of us fall into is we follow a program that is quote unquote, the best program on paper, but if we can't actually follow it and adhere to it, well, then it's essentially useless to us if it can't be executed in practice. So that's essentially the way I, I, I think when I, I go through a training plat program. I'm very clear on what am I trying to achieve? Do I understand the principles that must be in place? And then I can just choose a method that applies that principle. So some of the key principles I talk about um, are these ones here, and we're going to go through them very quickly so that we're all kind of familiar with the terminology. So the, the principle of adaptation, and that basically means our bodies adapt to a stress we put on it. So it's what our body does to program our muscles or movement or our skills to be able to deal with that stress in the future. So it's, it's like any skill you do. When the first time you do it, you're bad at it. But as you practice it over and over, the body gets better at performing that skill. It's the same thing with strength. If you weren't able for the exercise tonight, the body is... Detecting that's like, okay, the next time I deal with that stress, I want to be better at it. So the body will adapt. Now, the said principle applies here. And basically what that means is the principles or how our body adapts is very specific to the, the imposed demands we put on it. For example, if we are a runner, a marathon runner, our body adapts in a very different way to a strength athlete, say a power lifter, because the adaptation has to be specific to the demand. And I think this picture is a great illustration. So it's, it's an old picture. But these two guys are identical twins, Born's identical twins. So in terms of research, when it comes to uh, getting genetics lined up, you can't get do better. One brother got into marathon running. The other brother got into bodybuilding. And we can see here genetically pretty much the same, but they trained in very different ways. So the body adapted in very specific way to deal with the type of stress that was placed upon that body. So that's why with strength training, maybe... We have longer rest periods. We're not building up enough of a, a sweat compared to heat, but we're trying to build a different adaptation. We're trying to um, build strength. And to build strength, we have to progressively overload high-intensity movements or high-strain movements. So to do that, we need longer rest periods 
um, between sets and between exercises. So that, and that's specificity essentially that the body responds in a very, very specific way. So to get better at something, we must train it. And that's why with strength training, we tend to only change exercises every five or six weeks. We don't change every workout because we want to get stronger at a particular movement pattern or particular exercise. Therefore, we have to train it again and again and expose the body to that stress. So, and progressive overload then is probably the key one that a lot of people get wrong. So if anyone's into their Greek mythology, this chap is Milo of Croton. And the legend goes that a calf was born one day, Milo threw it on his shoulder and walked to the top of Mount Atlas and back down. And he used to do this every day. And as the calf grew every day a little bit, he got stronger and stronger. And then by the end, he was able to carry a bull up and down this mountain. Now, again, obviously mythology, but it's this idea of progressive overload that we want to place a gradual increasing stress on the body to force the adaptation because the body will adapt to a stimulus. And that's once the body has adapted to that, then we need a greater stimulus to continue to change. So what we want to do is progressively overload the magnitude of stimulus over time. So that's why in week one, we do two sets. In week two, we're increasing the volume, the amount of load put on the body because we go to three sets then. And then in week three, we go to more reps or higher weight. We're increasing the stimulus. And then we increase the sets again in week four and increase the weight and um, intensity in week five. So each week, we're progressively overloading a different um, element of the program. So we can overload the volume side of stuff in terms of the amount of reps you do, or we can overload the intensity side of stuff, which is the amount of weight you have. So intensity is just the percentage of your maximum that you're working at. So we'll either overload the intensity or the volume. And we can overload the volume then in a few ways. We can increase the reps, increase the sets, or we can make increase the time under tension, how long the muscle is actually working for. But over time and over the weeks, we want to see a gradual increase in, in these metrics. Where most people make mistakes is to change stuff up every week, sort of too much variety, and they don't track the volume and they're not, they're, yes, they might be doing a different session each week, but they all end up being averaging about the same amount of stress on the body. So if it's not progressively overloading, well, then it's, you're not gaining at the rate that you could be. Reversibility, again, that just basically means when you stop training, the gains you made start to go backwards a bit and start to detrain. Interestingly, if you have trained before, there is such a thing as muscle memory, you're able to gain it back much quicker. So if you were strong at one point, it's much easier to get stronger again. So that's why even for motivation, it's much harder to build a fitness component. So it's much harder to build the strength than it is to maintain it. So once you're there, staying strong or getting strong again is not all that difficult. Um, so very quickly then, heteronative response. That's just a fancy way of saying individuality. We all respond very differently to training. And this is what my research looks at, is if we give the same training program to two different people, why do they not respond the same? And there's so many different factors, but that's just something to be aware. We can't compare ourselves to others. We need to just compare ourselves to ourselves. Because for example, this is a, a training study of 287 people. And what we see is they followed 12 weeks training. Some people on the right of the graph here, you can see, they gained a lot of muscle. 
Some people eat lost muscle after 12 weeks of training. So generally people that fall down this side just need higher volumes or a different type of training approach. But what's important is it's a wide spectrum. Most of us fall in the middle here. These people here tend to be our elite athletes and most of us fall as we all are. I know we're, we're all special, but essentially we're all average at the same time. We're an average person, most of us. So that's one thing to be aware of that we'll all follow the same program. We'll all ad adapt differently. What's interesting, this graph was muscle size, muscle strength. Most people get stronger. Very few people don't respond to strength training. Strength is much more um, responsive than, than muscle size, it seems. So with good training, we all should get stronger. Same thing, again, just illustrated, happens with um, HIIT training then as well. Not everyone got fitter. There's different levels. Some people make a lot of progress. Some people don't make as much. So just something to be aware of that we all are unique and will respond differently. Um, the principle of recovery then. So as we discussed earlier, we don't get stronger through the workouts. We get stronger when our bodies recover from that stimulus. So this is why recovery is just important. We need to be able to sleep well. We have to eat well, get enough protein and try to keep our life stress down. So some of the things that can help then recovery and muscle soreness in your first week, you're going to be sore because it's something new for the body and it needs to adapt to it. But in weeks two, three and four, that soreness will get less and less. But the thing, the big things are important is your nutrition, getting enough protein, getting good quality sleep, trying to keep your life stress as low as you can. So the stoicism, hopefully, over the next few weeks will help that. And then active recovery. So motion is lotion is what we say with this type of stuff to even if you're sore, get up and walk around, do the bit of yoga, do the light sweat session. These will all enhance um, the recovery and reduce any soreness you may have. So nearly there, guys. And again, just to wrap up, exercise training, it's simply a way of applying the stress. And that's all we're doing. Over the next few weeks, we're going to try stress our bodies that we can force it to adapt in the way that we want to get stronger. So that is the what I covered this week and hopefully gives you an idea around some of the rationales and why we do what we do. So again, I will open it to the floor and any questions that people have, please shoot. And again, my um, social media and email I can share with Scott, my social media was at the start. Any questions people have then if uh, after we go off the call, you think of one, don't hesitate to message me or email me. Happy to chat. So lovely. I will open it to the floor. Fascinating, actually, all the graphs and stuff, adaptations. I think there's uh, questions in the chat, right? If you, I'll just uh, find a few now for you. Um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Here we go. Okay, yeah. So, does strength training break down fat or just repair, rebuild muscles by RB Lake? Okay, so when we are, are training, uh, our body will use two fuels. It'll either use fat or carbohydrate for um for fuel to work fuel the muscles so when we're at rest all of us sitting here now hopefully if, if our bodies are healthy we burn higher levels of fat compared to carbs and then when we exercise we um, burn higher levels of carbs because the body is just more efficient at breaking them down quicker so strength training itself is no different to hit training in terms of it's just fuel for the working muscle. So it's still going to be predominantly carbohydrate. Um, it does, as you say, break down muscle and we need to repair the muscle, but the fat doesn't break down. We don't have fat damage or anything like that. 
the only reason fat will be broke down is to supply energy. Um, and again, if we want to reduce um, body fat in terms of body mass, well, we have to be in a calorie deficit. We have to be, that's more nutrition side of things. But one thing that is interesting that people often forget is you can have a big aesthetic change without a change in body fat. For example, how when most of us think about body fat and from an aesthetic perspective, we talk about body fat percentage, yeah? So we talk about maybe someone is 15, 20, 30% body fat, whatever it may be. Well, if your body fat, the amount of body fat you have in terms of kilograms stays the exact same and you increase the amount of muscle you have, so say you grow a kilo or two kilos of muscle over a couple of months, well, then from a percentage-wise, you've actually reduced body fat percentage, even though the amount of fat on your body still stays the same. And from an aesthetic point of view, well, then you actually look leaner. So you won't have lost fat, but because you've gained muscle, the ratio of muscle to fat in the body is more favorable. You have a lower body fat percentage and aesthetically can make quite a, a difference. So that's one of the reasons why people will say or might think, well, lifting weights must melt the body fat. If you're not in a deficit, it won't lead to a decrease in weight, but you don't have to decrease the weight to see a, a reduction in your body fat percentage, if that makes sense. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, hope you've answered Abby, let us know. Um, Hannah, this is more probably, yeah, okay. How do we know for sure how many calories when you get daily in order to find out the calorie deficit? You'll just, with the app, it will work it out because you keep giving it the data and it will eventually look at your actual intake. So you can always have like calculations that give you estimates, but you only know when you actually start collecting your own data. I don't know if you see that, David. Like, what about how accurate do you have to get people's um, macros and calories when maybe they're trying to get ready for like a peak event or something? Yeah, like the thing is, I don't get too obsessed in terms of getting it to an exact number because as you said any calculator we use it gives us an estimation and it's only over time collecting information about ourselves that we start to um, really understand the exact numbers but on top of that food labels are permitted a certain amount of error um, and our estimation or weighing scales is has a certain amount of error so to get obsessed with exact numbers when there's a kind of a range that stuff will be within I don't think is good. Like even with some of the, the, the higher level athletes, if I'm prescribing macros, I'll prescribe it in a range. Say it could be 200 grams of carbs plus or minus 30 grams. And if one day they're at 220 and then the other day they're at 180, well, then it averages out. So I don't really mind because again, it's not what you do on the day to day. It's the average over the weeks and months that makes the difference. Exactly. Just had an email with that question. So you've answered it. <laughs> nice. Uh, so like uh, Joe, it's so interesting. I used to wonder why all the guys at the gym in the weights took rest for so long. They probably didn't do it for the right reasons, probably on their phones. <laughs> Texting. Um, I was chatting to Dr. P earlier and we were talking about the difference in strength. And he's like, oh, tell them what one of your powerlifting workouts must be like. And the thing is, when we're running up to a competition, one of my training sessions could be go in, work up to a heavy single, so one rep on a squat, and then sit down for five minutes <laughs> and rest five minutes and then just do one rep and another five minutes rest. So that, that's kind of the difference because what we call intensity, so what percentage of your max you're working at and volume are inversely related. So if you're working at a very high intensity near your max amount you can lift, well, then you can't do much volume. You can't do many reps with it because by definition, 
if you're near your one rep max, you can only do one rep with it. And a rep like that is very fatiguing. So if I need to care about performance and I want to hit that weight again, well, if I try to do it 30 seconds later, I'm not ready. I won't be able to hit. So that's why to get the best strength gains, we need to rest so the muscle can perform to the best in every set. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I think a lot of people here are probably used to just like, you know, super low rest periods, just get killed as opposed to like actually thinking strategically. And that's um, a different adaptation, as I said. That's a that's more of a cardio respiratory adaptation you're chasing there, not a muscular strength one. Yeah. I think that's the mindset shift people are going to have to overcome on this five-week journey because we have been used to doing like, you know, you think even by lockdown last year when we started doing live workouts, see the reason we did them was for people to feel better, essentially. So, yeah, it was high, high intensity, Spanish, salsa music. Now it's like the completely opposite. So, yeah. Um, okay, here we go. I feel coming in now. Um, how much should you increase weight, weight each time? Asked by Emily. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, it depends upon the intensity we want to work at for that session. So, in, in the session during the moment, we're focusing on that time under tension that we want to get to the 10 reps. So I would say over the next five weeks, you want to increase as much as you can, but not to all out failure in terms of want you to finish the sets. And we like to keep things maybe of what we call one or two reps in reserve. So that basically means that if you had to, you could maybe squeeze out one or two more reps, but definitely no more than that. If you go to that level of intensity on average on your sets, that's close enough to get all the gains and um, all the adaptation we want without going that extra rep or two would build up fatigue very quickly if we went to all out failure on every set. And if we went to all out failure on the first and second set, well, then by the time we get to the third or fourth, well, then we wouldn't be able to perform as well. We're leaving one or two reps in the tank every set, but allows you the quality of the volume you accumulate over multiple sets is much better then. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Important. Joe's asking as well, how does muscle memory work in the average person? Riggy Harden has huge differences when training and when not. So guess how quickly would it be for the average person? It's a good question. So uh, how it works is, it depends on the type of training, obviously. But say for when we grow new muscle, essentially we obviously grow new muscle cells and there's certain things and elements within the cell, such as the nucleus, what we call it, and satellite cells, these cells that can kind of, a jack of all trades, they can turn into other cells. So basically we build up new ones of those. So what happens is when we stop training and say we lose muscle, we lose the muscle tissue, but those new cells we've made, essentially the infrastructure remains there dormant. So then when we go back training, we don't have to build them from new, essentially the factories that are sitting there already just unoccupied. And instead of building a new factory, we just open back up the existing factory was there. So that's what strength training, what tends to happen. And again, how long it takes, it depends on how well trained you are in the past, how long you were trained for that. Um, and a few different things. If it's endurance training, um, one of the things that we see happen when we endurance train is we build new capillaries. So actual blood vessels to carry blood and um, to the working muscles. Then when you detrain again, you lose the fitness say, from the lungs and, and the heart and stuff. But then when you go back running again, well, now you don't have to build new capillaries. They're already there. So the infrastructure is in place. So that's all training does. We build an underlying infrastructure when we, which are essentially, you could think of them as factories. When we stop training, the factories close down. 
And then if we go back training, we don't have to build new factories from scratch. We just open the doors and get the conveyor belts going again. I love that. Fascinating, actually. Isn't it? it is fascinating what the body can do. Um, good question. Okay. How do you maintain? Because you can't keep increasing weight reps forever. Or do you change the exercises? Request by Kelly. Yeah. So again, small increases can make a big difference in terms of this linear progression. So we can increase a set, but as you said, when we get up to three, four, five sets per exercise, that's probably enough. We're not going to go up more there, but we can usually then progress reps quite easily. We can go from sets of eight then to sets of 12 or 10, then to 12. And then if you hit 12, go up a kilo or two and repeat, you know, can you do it for eight reps and, and then for three sets of eight this week, and then maybe next week, four sets of eight and then four sets of 10. And this kind of linear progression where we just change because all you're ever going to change is the number of sets, the weight or the intensity you're working at, um, and the reps. That's all you're going to change is one, those three. So you can change something like frequency as well. So say if we're squatting once a week, well, then when progress stops, we'll put in a second squat session. So we're getting more repeated stimulus. But with this linear progression, you can kind of, you can milk that for many, many years. Um the biggest thing is why most people change exercise is it gets boring is, is if we're honest. Now I would encourage people to come join me as a power lifter. Um, my sport is literally the squat, the bench press and the deadlift. And I don't pretty much do anything else. I train those three lifts two, three times a week for years. Um, now it probably takes some sort of psychosis, <laughs> I would say <laughs> to be able to kind of get a kick off just um, those three exercises. But I would argue for most of us, it's not that we get bored with the exercises is we get frustrated when stuff stalls as in I'm happy to squat bench and deadlift. If you were increasing the 10 kilos every week, I reckon you do it for years if you kept increasing steadily. So it's, it's more kind of increasing it steadily, but I would say for variety, we tend to change the exercises every six to eight weeks. Um, just for to, so we keep the adaptations going and, holistically we develop different qualities um but changing it more frequently like that changing up the exercise every week or two weeks for me that's just um it, it's it's you're spinning your wheels you're not really spending enough time for any one adaptation to occur to get better at any one area yeah that makes sense probably really important actually that's the question i think we get a lot of strength training is like us boring it be boring when you're making games, guys, when you, you can yeah. punch through a wall. Do you know what I mean? That's what you're going to get to. You're gonna, it's harder to die. Remember that. Here's the next one. Uh, let's have a look. Okay. So Harry says, in the workout earlier, I was doing movements like wide press and front raise while standing, and I got pain in my knee. I think it was from bracing, trying to protect my back. I have soft tissue injury in the knee at the moment, so trying to keep pressure off as much as possible. Is it a better position than standing or something I can use to protect my knee when doing upper body work? Yeah, okay. So it was a lateral raise and what was the other exercise? And the wide press, anything like standing with weight. Okay. Yeah. Anything like that. Um, so we don't want the knees locked. We want a soft bend in the knee. I, ideally, that's one thing. Anything like that, you probably can do in a seated position. If, it, if it's more comfortable, sitting on the edge of the chair, you can do the same movements, takes pressure off the knee. Um, and then depending on how the knee is, if it was to be done, you could do it kneeling. 
or half kneeling, which was kind of in that one foot forward, one behind. So yeah, whatever adaptation that, that or whatever kind of modification you need to make, you can. Because again, if it's an upper body exercise, like Ray is, if we're standing, we want to, to be braced and tight so that we have a strong base of support. But again, what is the desired adaptation of that exercise? It is to increase the strength and muscle quality of the shoulders, if it's a the um, frontal raise or lateral raise. Well, then we don't care if we're sitting. So you say, oh, well, I'm not bracing my legs. Well, it doesn't really matter because that's not the goal of the exercise. So if you need to sit down to prevent knee pain, I've no issue with that whatsoever. That That's fine. Nice, nice. And um, do you find, I don't know what the latest research is on like wrapping knees and stuff is not a good thing or like supporting knees, like knee sleeves and wraps, no? Yeah, generally, no, the supports don't don't seem to, to do a whole lot. Um, they, they are beneficial, but much more for placebo kind of and comfort. They, mm. they feel nicer and gives us the extra bit of support. Another thing you can do, depending on the exercise, is just stand against the wall so that you're not having the balance. Say if you're doing a frontal raise, put your back up against the wall um, so that the wall is supporting you um, if, if you're having lower back or knee issues. Nice, nice. And from Katie, would you advise doing any cardio going for the occasional run alongside the strength trainer over these five weeks? Yeah, well, again, I'm never going to say don't do physical activity. It's just about fatigue management and, and not overdoing it. And depends on what level you're coming from, because obviously we have the, the yoga and the hit workout that we're getting um, some cardiovascular uh, exercise there. And everyone should still be keeping their step count high and trying to um, trying to walk as much as possible what I would say is if running is something you have experience with already and something you already do then by all means going for a couple of runs is not going to have um, any issue if you're coming from a place where you haven't trained much in the recent past and you're doing strength training now all of a sudden and something new and you're putting running on top of that it can be too much stress at one time and might be asking for injury um, what I would say is if you want to do something like that and you want to limit the fatigue, um, well, then we recommend doing something that's off feet. So cycling, air bike or swimming, something that doesn't have the impact as running will be less fatiguing and blends better with, with strength training. So I, ho- I hope that answers that. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, so like what do you say with running? So say now you, didn't, you weren't running, but you wanted to start. What's the balance? Like if you did... If you started doing three runs and three strength trainings, would that then start tipping the balance where your ad- adaptation would be reduced on strength because you're trying to do the two of them? Potentially, potentially, because if you don't have much experience with running it, it causes a lot of um, muscle damage. So, and it, it's impactful on the joints then as well. So it's like everything the, the the poison is in the dose. It depends on how much, if it's one or two short, moderate intensity, just jogs, runs, well, that should be fine. If it's kind of three hard runs a week and then three hard strength sessions, you're going to start um, getting into the bother then, I'd imagine. Nice. Yeah, good one. Hopefully that helped, uh, Anthony Katie. I want you out this morning. Okay, Hannah. Um, yeah, this is not a strength training one. So, uh, yeah, thank you. I thought 1,980 calories is a lot. I thought I need to eat 1,002 in order to lose one kilogram weekly. That's not true because it would... Just depend. That's just like Hannah. What's happening here is different programs. People advise me differently. Wasn't confused. So Hannah, what you're finding here is like the basic 1,200 calorie a day approach, which is thrown about on my fitness pal forums, all that stuff. 
you've put your in- details into the app, you've put your step count, your job, everything. So the app has given its best estimate onto your calories for your goals. So if you pick fat loss and it's 1,980, stick to that. And if you're not losing weight over time, the app will automatically reduce your macros. So don't go on different forums now. Just stick to this group because you're gonna otherwise you're gonna lose your head. Like look for example, what David just showed now in strength training. Imagine going on Google and like you know typing all this in, you'll just start losing your mind. So yeah, that was another strength one. But Hannah, you can message me if you want more clarity on that because I feel like you're uh, stressing out. Phil. I have a slightly higher cholesterol. My GP said to eat less meat, but I feel like it will be hard to maintain a high protein diet without it. What's the advice? Mm-hmm. So when it when it comes to cholesterol, so cholesterol is actually quite complex because genetics is actually a huge component of, of your cholesterol. But when they say reduce meat intake, generally refers to more the red meats and meats higher in saturated fats. They're going to be more um, linked to cholesterol and LDL content and stuff like that. What I would say is your stick to your lean meats. So your, your, your chicken essentially, um, and fish. Um, so we know that oily fish, especially ones that are high in, in omega trees, salmon, mackerel have a protective effect on the cardiovascular system and have beneficial effects towards cholesterol and potentially as well. So that's what I would say is stick more to the lean meats and the, um, and fish. Then on top of that, like again, I'm sure Dr. P can can talk more to that. We we discuss a lot of time. There are vegan and vegetarian diets to get enough protein. Um, and there are plenty of good plant source proteins you can go for. Um, if you're dairy, you know, in terms of uh obviously I, I'm Irish, but I imagine in Aldi in the UK, we still have a lot of the same things. A lot of the high protein yogurts are fantastic. And economically, the amount for what they cost, the amount of protein you get in them, they're fantastic. So some of the um, skier yogurts we have here in Ireland and those type of ones that are um, low fat, high protein, you can get tubs that are about 50 grams of protein for only about maybe three, 400 calories. And some of those are fantastic. Um, so mix those with your lean fish um, or lean meats, your fish. And then you have beans, lentils, pulses, all these type of plant-based sources then as well that I imagine you should be able to um, get enough in because we want to be hitting as strength training anywhere from kind of 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per day is more than enough uh, per kilogram of body weight, sorry. So say for someone that's 90 kilos, you're talking anywhere from kind of 135 up to 180 grams of protein per day and then adjust that in your body weight up or down. So most of us are able to hit that easily enough from our, from our diet and eggs and as well, obviously as, as well, um, another great, great option. And if you try all these and still struggle, well then there's nothing wrong with getting just a whey, play, plain whey protein or something to add into your, to your foods or just to drink separately can help bring those numbers up. Nice. Nice. Big question today, Dr. David. For the protein question, how can I get my protein? <laughs> so you answer that. Um, Emily, see this again. It's more nutrition. I'll maybe get Dr. P to do a nutrition one. If you're looking to lose weight, how much would you recommend reducing your calories per day? If you're using the app, it will give you a 500 calorie deficit. So, I mean, follow that. Um, I'd actually choose strength over hit any day. Yes, Joe, amazing. Thanks about for you. All good. Thanks, guys. Great comments. Okay, Steve. Steve-o. Okay, how do you know? Your lifting limits, if you have underlying conditions, I know it's gradual increase over time, but there's a stopping point. Okay, so 
first of all, uh, the disclaimer would be you consult your, your medical professional who you deal with for that underlying condition and be it a physiotherapist or doctor. But there are some heuristics we generally use. So if it's something musculoskeletal, so a, an, an old injury or something like that, one of the worst things you can do is actually not train it. So we, you end up in something that's called a fear avoidance cycle that you, you're afraid to go into certain positions. And then over time, it actually aggravates it. Um, a lot of people that have back problems come from this kind of um, blend of psychosomatic along with a pre-existing injury and it's all intertwined and it's, it's quite, quite complex. But what we would say is even if there's a bit of discomfort in the movement, that's okay. One, it's about a three or up to a three or a four out of 10. So if I have a, an injury, say if I have a knee injury or a quad injury, I'll still do squats. But if it's because you want to get to a stage where whatever the injured limb or joint or muscle is, that you're training it through its full range of motion, again, overload, under load, and that's what builds up strength then over time. Um, so move it through its full range of motion if you can, as much as you can. If the pain or discomfort goes above a trio or four out of 10, well, then we'd say, okay, you're pushing it too much and we'd make a different modification. Um, like with some of the exercises, we would do the eccentric, so the lengthening or the lowering portion of the exercise. We'd maybe just do that and not do the push bit and then over time build up strength. Very good resource um, for this kind of stuff would be a group called Barbell Medicine. So Dr. Jordan Fogenbaum and Dr. Dr. Austin Baraki. They do a lot of this around kind of pain science and how to deal with injury and how to strength train and its benefits for injury. So I'd recommend reading some of their articles as well. Nice, nice. Maybe, do you know them? Yeah, yeah, I know the guys, yeah. Maybe we can get them to a Q&A maybe at the end. I don't know how many better. But Steve, hopefully that was helpful. Uh, let me let us know. But yeah, David, nice one. Detail. You have a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> a bluffer, yeah. that's all I am. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, prefers strength training. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, Amber. Okay. Yeah. This is a good one. So when when my joints click to the movements, the cartilage, ligaments rolling over the joint, is this will this do damage over time? That's a common one. A common misconception. So if there's no pain associated, then there shouldn't be any issue whatsoever, because essentially your your ligaments and tendons they're just elastic bands that hold stuff together. Either the tendon attaches muscle to the bone. And the bones holds or the, the ligaments hold bones to bones. So essentially, you can think of a, a tight rubber band pulled over, say, your knuckle. Well, if it's pulled here and your knuckle twists in a certain way, well, then it just flips down over and the band would make a sound. No damage done to the band, no irritation to the joint. So some clicking is completely normal. Um, if there's no pain or irritation caused when it happens, nothing to worry about. That's nice. I get it, actually. So, yeah. I'm safe and did. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, here's one by Karen. I started with a PT twice a week around six weeks ago. Is it too much to do three sessions and my two PT a week? Um, no, I think that, that should be okay. I would make the PT aware of what you're doing and the additional sessions so they're able to modify the sessions. But anything like that, a lot of it comes down to your ability to tolerate stress and that's down to the individual because we all have different genetics different training history and then different sleep stress and, and nutrition and they all play in so the best thing is try it see how you feel if you don't feel great and you're not progressing then you're probably doing a bit too much and pull back a bit um, and then just find where your sweet spot is because um, five sessions a week it's a lot it's a lot to do mm. five sessions a week 
So just make sure that um, you're, you're enjoying it and you're making progress. But again, a little bit of, of self-experimentation there is needed. Sure, sure. Um, and what I'd say is when people talk about doing three sessions and two sessions, not every session has to be a max out session. So even with athletes, when we work, say if we're doing five sessions a week, we'd have two hot sessions where, okay, we're working hard, but to treat, we'd have three then low to moderate intensity sessions that you can't go all out every session. It's just, just not sustainable. So, and, that, and that's a mindset you have to get into. That you don't need to be dead after every training session. That That's not a prerequisite for progress. And it's, again, you know, we like to train hard and feel like we worked hard. But if we do that every single session, every single day, we, it's not sustainable. It's not for the long term. Nice, nice. Any advice on how to get rid of belly fat when I don't have extra weight? All down to your nutrition, Phil, all of it. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's true. The, our body fat distribution, we can't influence when we gain weight, we can't influence where we gain it. When we lose it, we can't influence where we lose it from. Um, and uh, the reality for most of us is um, the belly fat at the bottom of our stomach tends to be the last place that we lose fat from. Um, so, you know, I mean, we can we can worry about it or we can just kind of with the stoicism accept that we can't control it. Um, and I know, I know myself, that's where I lose it. Or again, the bottom of my chest. Will be the last place to lose body fat from so we can't control it and the or the sad reality is usually the last place you lose it from is the first place you gain it back then as well so it's kind or of, a design you gotta love it's the design. nature of the beast <laughs> <laughs> well, well, from an evolutionary perspective it makes sense because the last bit of fat that your body wants to give up is obviously where it views it as being most important mm. that it needs to be so then when it can gain it back it's going to say well i need to put it back in the important place so yeah that does make sense yeah ah, nice get it and uh okay everyone's thanks that's it uh shower watts no you're not meant to do a session in the morning and evening we've just got two live <laughs> sessions just so people get a chance to do live in the morning and evening it's from previous challenges obviously if we just did the evening and people in the mornings you'd be like where's the morning session so we're just democracy guys okay which help you uh, Harry saying, okay, this is a good one to answer actually because we have named them push pull legs. So, what's the difference between push and pull workouts? Does it matter more of one or the other? Well, the push ones are movements we're pushing away from ourselves. So, push ups, overhead press. The pull ones is, as it describes, is when we're pulling stuff towards us. So, generally, the push movements use the muscles at the front of the body, the chest, the front of the shoulders, those type of movements where pull movements tend to use the muscles of our back and, and upper back. Does it matter if you do one more than the other? Potentially. Um, what you tend to find, especially in a lot of us powerlifters, we do a lot of bench press movement. The row is not one of the movements we do in competition. So an adaptation, as I said, the body gets has specific adaptation to the imposed demand. So over years, if all I do is bench press, well, then the chest muscles are going to get tighter and you get this shoulder roll forward. If you do a lot of upper back movements, you get those shoulders pulled back into this position. So it's a good idea to have an even balance of um, push to pull. So we get even development across all our, all our muscles. So yeah, that's generally um, the, the, it's a good idea to have a good ratio of one to the other. You do here in sports, if you hear certain people that their quads get too strong, so the muscles at the front of the legs, 
get too strong compared to the hamstrings. And that's why hamstring tears sometimes happen. So there's a bit of evidence for that then as well. So we just want even strength development all over the body. So that's why we have an even split of push and pull. Yeah, nice. I think Harry has a question earlier as well, I just remembered. So he's going to do the push and pull, but no legs. So if you were to do a third session, would you just repeat one of them or would you maybe do a mix of both? Or like, would you just... Again, that comes to the, the personal preference and where they feel they want the extra bit of stimulus and development to, to go. Do they want it to go to kind of the, the, the back muscles or more to the, the chest and, and the, the front muscles? So again, it's, it's up, but you could do an even split then either. Um, like if you're doing two push to one pull, that's enough probably for even development, a bit more bias towards the front, but it's not like within a couple of months, shoulders going to be roll forward and um, the neck is no longer distinguishable from the head or the body. That doesn't <laughs> happen that quickly. Yeah, nice, nice. Maybe maybe just alternate each weekend, is it? Do a push, yeah. do a double pull, do a double push. Yeah, um, that works. All right, and let us know if that answers it. Um, Joe, okay, it's a good one, actually. I can never get my breathing right when doing weights. Any advice? So. Yeah, so generally, um, it depends upon the exercise and what you're doing. But what I generally recommend is most people will breathe in on the way down. So say if I'm lowering the weight, I'll breathe in on the way down and blow out on the way up. Well, that's probably actually wrong because you think what we want to do when we are exercising, we always told to brace the core and keep our core nice and tight. When we're breathing, and breathing in those muscles apologies, those muscles are, are moving about and they can't be tight and braced because they're, they're moving about so what we actually want to do is before we begin the rep take a deep breath in belly breathe hold tense then perform the rep so say if i'm squatting when i'm standing at the top i take my breath in i brace then i squat down keep holding the breath and then when i start to push up when i reach the kind of difficult point the exertion point then I breathe out because when you breathe out the diaphragm and all the muscles of the rib, they're contracting, compressing, which increases the pressure in the stomach, what we call intra-abdominal pressure, which is essentially our bracing. And those muscles tighten up, give a strong back, strong core and allow you to finish out the movement. So that's the kind of best way to do it. Take a breath before the rep starts, perform the rep. And when it's getting to the push point, the difficult point, breathe out then to force your way on through it. Then you stand tall, Take another breath if you need, and then set for the next rep. It's like your reserves, your battle battalion in reserve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like people, obviously, if you watch a weightlifter or, or powerlifter, they wear the belt, and people think the belt is to support your back, but it's, it's actually not. What we do is we put the belt on, we take a big breath, and we actually force our bellies into the belt as hard as we can. So we're filling our core with as much air as we can that our bellies push into the belt, our back pushes into the belt, but because the belt is stiff, it doesn't move. So we're forcing into the belt. The belt is forcing it, uh, exerting a force back onto us. And that's causing the core muscles to push against it. And that increases the pressure in the trunk, what we call this intra-abdominal pressure. And this increased pressure essentially makes a really solid wall all around our core. So that if we have a big bar on our back, our core is strong and it doesn't push us over. So that's what we use the belt. Simply wearing the belt by itself won't do anything. It's the act of bracing into the belt that causes the back and the core muscles to work hard and keep that solid throughout the movement. Nice, nice. Interesting. Didn't know that. 
few more than David, and then uh, we'll be back next week. Mm. I'll put a form up if anyone's got any questions. So, Amy Nav, okay, let's get through these. Progressive overload. Can we do the four sets for our workouts now if we're used to lifting and have been doing it regularly for six months and then just up our weight over the next five weeks? I wouldn't recommend it because, again, we're going to cover, going go through the spreadsheet next week and look at the numbers. I would recommend using the intensity. If you have enough um, experience, make sure that the weight you're lifting or the intensity you're working at is hard enough that for the two sets, you're only at that one to two reps left in the tank. If you're finding it too easy, then in terms of the reps, you just need to make it harder some way by doing a more challenging variation or increasing the load. The problem is what we want to increase strength is an increase in the volume of high intensity work we're doing. So if you start at four sets now, well, where do you go? As in, we need this progressive overload week on week. So if I start at really high amounts of training now, there's nowhere to really go and just increasing the weight may be enough, but I'd argue that the increase in the weight and volume, it will lead to a better progressive overload week on week. Because essentially what we do is at the start of the training block now, we're doing two sets. We're down around what we call minimal effective dose. So we're down around this. You're doing enough training that causes enough stimulus and stress that you will improve. And then over the weeks, we move up towards this kind of theoretical idea of maximal recoverable volume or maximal tolerable dose. So each week we push you a little bit more until we get to week five and you're pretty much at your limit. Okay, I've maxed out. This is the most my body can handle. Um, and this is as much adaptation as I can get. Then what do we do? We take an easy week, let the fatigue go away, let the body recover. And then we start then again down at the minimal effective and we build up. And it's this building up waves. But the thing is, once you've built up strength over the last five weeks, your starting point for the next training block is higher than your starting point of this training block. And then you do that week after week, month after month, and you get stronger. Like powerlifting, uh, strength training, it's an easy sport. You just have to be patient and consistent more than anything else. I like it. I like it. Next one, heterogeneity is other word. Why was it that some people didn't make the same progress in those studies? Is there a key variable that limits progress? So it's just individual differences in terms of our, our genetic makeup. Um, we can get very much into the science, but some people respond better. Um, like there's some of us, doesn't matter how hard we trained, we're not going to be elite athletes. Um, me, you, you can't tell, but I, I'm never going to play NBA basketball. If, if you saw me in real life. Um, I decided to grow outwards rather than upwards um, was my strategy. But there's several things, genetic factors and how you adapt. There's also your fiber type distribution, whether you're more type one, type two dominant, they'll respond differently. Then everyone has different sleep patterns, different nutrition. All these confounded variables come together that we all vary um, differently. The, the main thing that tends to be in terms of the variable that limits progress or influences progress those people who didn't respond so good, they just usually need a little bit more of a stress response. They need higher volumes to push them on is usually what's needed. So it's not fair that some people can train less and gain more, but this is, this is life. Life. Uh, it's actually a good question. So what's the difference of if there's 10 reps times, times two kilos, that's obviously 20 kilos of load or two reps times 10 kilos, the same total weight, yeah? What makes one better than the other? So that's 
total tonnage is what we call that. And that's a simple way of measuring the volume in terms of the tonnage, just the amount of weight. So what makes those different is 10 reps with 2 kg is higher volume of lower intensity. So lower intensity exercise doesn't stimulate. So we have, we'll go through it next week, but we have, as I said, the type one fibers, which are the slow fibers that don't exert much force. And you have your type two muscle fibers and they're the powerful fibers. Low intensity exercise, the body starts off by recruiting the type one fibers and saying, okay, can you handle the demand? And if they can handle the demand, well, then there's no need for the type two to be powerful fibers to uh, kick in. So they relax. So that's if you're doing two kilos and it's not coming near failure, well, then the type ones can handle that. So everything else shuts off. Or if you're doing, say, lower reps of higher weight, well, then the type ones start to kick in and they say, okay, it's too much stress for us. We can't handle it. So then you get higher levels of muscle recruitment. The type two fibers, the big, strong guys come in to help them and you get a higher proportion of muscle activation. So, you know what I mean? So if you're doing low reps or low weight, high reps, um, and it's not that difficult, well, then it's a case of 10% of your muscle can deal with that stress. It doesn't need to call in. Or if it's a high weight, well, then you may need 60% of your muscle to kick in and contribute to moving that load then. And they're going to lead to different adaptations um, along the line. Nice. I love these explanations. You know, like the soldiers and stuff, hey, the infantry, and we pull in the, the tanks. <laughs> I love it. And I'm like, one more, you're never going to quadruple it. Okay, so it hurts my neck if I do lateral raise or front raise with both arms at the same time, historically herniated disc in my spine, ice hockey injury. Can I do one arm at the time instead? Is there much of a difference? Ice hockey, that is a brutal, brutal sport. I work with some NHL guys, um, they're built very differently. Yeah, doing one arm at a time is not going to make a difference. Again, the, the muscles are going under the same strain. So if the case that two arms is causing you strain, do one at a time. No, no issue there whatsoever. Um, and one at a time sometimes can allow you to um, kind of identify asymmetries or differences between sides then as well a bit easier. Nice, nice. Hopefully that's us, Amy. All good. Uh, Tiff Tracy, here we go then. So I know Tiff does a lot of training herself, so she deadlift stuff. So can I add a fourth day to still do my bigger heavy lifts like the deadlifts, hip thrusts, bench press, stuff like that? Jeez. Yeah, I, I don't see a, a, an issue with that. Um, just again, it comes to volume management. If you have a good training history already behind you, then you're probably able to handle that. Um, funnily enough, with stuff like deadlifts, squats, bench press, as I said, to maintain the strength, you don't need to actually do that much. So if you went in and just hit one, maybe two sets of a couple of reps on each of those exercises at a reasonably heavy weight, more than enough to maintain maintain your strength. So yeah, I don't see any issue with that. Nice. And two more. So Anne's asking, are there any alternatives to those prenatal and can do weights? So again, um, Everything like this should be discussed with your, your, your physician or your obstetrician. Um, I would, you're making an assumption there that um, people shouldn't do weights while pregnant, which again goes against kind of the evidence. Um, we see after the kind of second trimester, we tend to avoid anything that leaves the um, individual lying for a long time, either on their back or on their stomach, obviously. We tend to avoid anything that has large degrees of, of flexion. Um, or puts pressure on, on the abdominal area. But other than that, 
most of the exercises I'm trying to think, bar maybe the, the core base ones, the plank, anything like that, squats, hinges, anything like that, presses, pushes, maybe not the push-ups, but potentially a wall variation should be fine. Most of those um, things should be fine with, with um, prenatal. But again, anything like that, that's just my general advice. That's not specific advice. Um, a very good person in this area is Molly Galbraith. Um, uh, I, I did a podcast with her before. She runs um, uh, a couple of things around prenatal exercise. So to be a good check out any interviews with her around. I, I, if, if you want to look up my podcast, I did an exercise with her about this um, weight training during pregnancy. Yeah, if you send me all the links and I'll post some yeah. as well, I'll be happy days. And then uh, hopefully I'll answer the end. And then last one, um, uh, last one, what if you can't have a high protein diet? Is there more context behind that, Sarah? Um, if a doctor's told you uh, yeah. what is well, uh, look, If a doctor has told you or a dietitian is a qualified dietitian has told you, their advice obviously must be taken. Um, usually people with renal issues are, are they generally the only ones that are asked to avoid high protein diets. And again, if, if you, yeah, renal consultant, um, again, they've given you that for a very specific reason. And obviously in terms of supplementation, creatine is, is a no on it then as well, if there's an underlying renal condition. Again, you work with what's in your control. Does it mean that you won't gain? No, not at all. Um, you, it just means that there's a potential limitation on, uh, on the rate of gain, but it doesn't mean that you won't gain. It just means you, the strength in increases you could make will be at a slower rate than what you could potentially do on a high protein diet. What I will say though, is for strength itself, the protein is not as important. The protein tends to be as important for the, the yes, the repair element and the muscle growth but for increasing strength. You can usually get away with um, a bit lower of, of a protein. If the, the muscle mass increases, not as important of a goal, but again, there's obviously a medical condition that you are told to avoid the high protein diet for so there should you just have to stick to that and kind of de- do what you can is within your control nice i like it i like it david this has been awesome thank you for your time and teaching us all this awesome information thanks everyone for tuning up we had a big turnout after the workout as well so thanks for you spending your evenings with us on monday <laughs> learning about strength and doing some press ups um but if you've got any questions, David, I'm going to create a Google form and then I'll give you access so people can ask questions one-to-one and then you can, you know, take over time. Um, and, yeah. And if you can all remember to put your weights and reps into your tracking sheet, that would be very good to get into the habit of doing that before you forget. Um, David, any final words of wisdom for these on the day one of the new challenge? Um, just to remember that, that progress will occur and it, it takes time, but as I said at the start, jokingly, and again, I, what would you say? I have to rein my personality in sometimes, but you know, if you try twice as hard, you can't have a baby in four and a half months. So it's, it's just can't be done. Things take time. You can't rush the process. So just stick to the, to, to the plan. And yes, a lot of you will probably be sore this week, but again, that's just a new stress on the body as your body adapts, which it will, the soreness will go away. And you'll just see the, the fruits kind of coming through and the strength will increase. And it is like, I, I don't know if any of you have um, been on any of the chats with Hugh Gilmore, but people think motivation comes before the success that you get motivated and then you get success where really 
success builds motivation because the most time you're motivated is when you've done something really good and you're like, okay, I want to go do it again. And when you start to see that progress, that will build the motivation. It's very easy to stick to a exercise program when you're feeling the progress. And the nice thing about strength training, very numerical, you can very much track the increase and how you're progressing week on week. Yes, we can't wait to see those graphs going up. Um, thanks, everyone. David, I'll speak to you in a bit. Uh, everyone, see you tomorrow. Thanks very much, guys. See you awesome. next week. So, everyone, yeah. that's no stop. <laughs>